0: I just want to catch you up to speed with what's been going on in the book of Acts. These guys in Grace London have been journeying through this book for, I think, some time, right? A little while, is that right? And um, it's a book all about this mission to take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the world. Jesus has died and risen again to prove himself to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, and then in this crazy twist in the story, he, his great strategy to share this great good news with the nations of the world is to commission 12 blokes and disappear from the scene. It's not what I would have done, but Jesus knows best. And, um, and so we're reading this story. And for the first eight or so chapters, Dr. Luke, who writes this, uh, this book, this narrative, he's really focused on uh, sh- this sharing of this good news message with the Jews, and specifically around Jerusalem. And then there's this great twist in the narrative in Acts chapter 9, where a guy called Paul has an encounter with the living God, and he becomes this apostle, this sent one, this missionary to uh, the Gentiles, to those that don't know, uh, so that those that, who weren't part of the Jewish faith. And so Dr. Luke, in his account, from, from around Acts 10 to Acts 14, and there's this, there's this focus on the message being shared amongst the Gentiles through Peter uh, in and around Jerusalem and, and modern-day Israel, and then uh, with Paul uh, up into Antioch and Syria and other places. And um, there's, there seems to be this thing that, that Paul uh, sorry, that Luke wants to draw out of the narrative. In Acts chapters 4 to, uh, eleven to fourteen, where where we start to see the threat uh, that is coming and the opposition that is coming against this gospel message, right? And so you see persecution, you see martyrdom, the beheading of uh, James in I think it's Acts eleven. And all that matters, because I think when we come to Acts chapter fifteen, uh, Luke has on his mind, not threats that are coming from outside the church that would stall this great message of salvation going to the ends of the earth, but threats from within the church that can also hinder and stall the mission. Does that make sense? I think we're all very comfortable with the fact that, that there is opposition to the gospel from those outside the church. You live in secular London, right? When you say to your mates, I'm a Christian, I suspect that not all of them go, Oh, that's wonderful. Please tell me more. Maybe they do. Maybe I'm mistaken. It doesn't happen that way in Tonopandi. But sometimes I think we can miss that there can also be hindrances and opposition that comes against the great mission of the gospel that comes from within the church. And in Acts chapter 15, uh, Luke identifies two things. The second one, which we don't have much time to look at today, is uh, is, is personal conflict in the church. You see that at the end of the chapter. We're not going to read that bit. But the second great threat that Luke draws out, although actually the first one in the chapter, is the threat of false teaching and false gospels that can stall God's mission to get His good news to the ends of the earth. And so today we're going to have a look at this passage. We're going to have a think about how false doctrine and false teaching can bubble up in the life of the church locally and universally. And we're going to ask and answer three simple questions. What was the problem? What wasn't the problem? And what did they do about it? And so with that in mind, let's turn to Acts chapter 15. We're going to read from verse 1, I think, down to verse 35, if that's all right. A good chunk of scripture. We'll see how we get on. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me, Simeon, who related how God first visited the Gentiles to take take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, "...although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed uh, seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves would tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols." and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these uh, these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were were sent off, (coughs) they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Well done for listening to that long <laughs> passage of scripture. Okay, let's go. Question one What was the problem that threatened to hinder the advance? Of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Said it already. You see it in verse 1 false teaching, right? These men show up in the church in Antioch, and I think that they believed that there was salvation in the name of Jesus, because they're talking about how people can be saved. We see a little bit further down, is it in verse 5, that there were Pharisees and They were believers. And so I think these guys were part of the church. They in some way put their faith in Christ. And yet there's this problem. They were Jews. They followed the Torah, the teachings of Judaism. And so when they've heard that there were people coming to Christ from other nations, not not Jews worshipping through the requirements of the Torah, but Gentiles, they come along And they start spreading this teaching that for the nations of the world to come to faith, that those people have to follow the requirements of the law, and in particular, circumcision. Now, there's good news for us men in the room. This was a false teaching. I don't have my scalpel with me for the response time. These guys had got it wrong, praise the Lord. But they'd come amongst the people of God, and they were unsettling them with this false teaching. And this wasn't just a theological debate for theological debate. Those kind of things, you want to avoid those things, right? This had very real consequences on the people who'd come to faith in Christ, and actually not just around circumcision, but, but I think the thing that is going on in the background in this chapter is that, that these people were coming and they were saying, look, those of us who are Jewish be- believers in the church must not eat, have table fellowship with those of other nations. That unless these people follow the ways of the Torah, the rules of Ju- Judaism, then they are unclean and we should not Eat with them. That's why you read in, is it verse twenty, that um, when the response comes from James, he starts talking about um, abstaining from things polluted by idols. That was food, and to and to abstain from things that had been strangled and from blood. This was about table fellowship. Could these Gentile believers sit at the table and fellowship with Jewish believers? And of course, Peter and Paul had said yes. When Cornelius in in Acts 10 came to faith, Peter was there in his household and they were eating together. When Paul and Barnabas were doing their thing, they were eating even as Jews with these new Gentile believers. This is one of the great truths of the gospel of Jeremy shared this, I don't want to go into it for too long, but when you were looking at Acts chapter 10, but the great and glorious news of the gospel is that people from every nation, Jew or Gentile, have been welcomed into a new family. What do new families do? They eat together. All the time. And so there's something massive at stake here. When I was at, one of the highlights of last year for me was that I went out to Senegal to help train some missionaries going uh, into uh, North Africa. I can't really say too much more about where they were going or what they were doing, but one of the highlights of the trip was to sit down every day at lunchtime on a, the floor of an old school, and they would bring out a great big dish of rice and vegetables and fish, with the eyes still in, and we would sit there on the floor, people from the nations of the world with a little spoon each, sharing table fellowship together. We'd never met before. We couldn't speak the same language. We didn't have the same color skin. But in Christ, we were brothers and sisters. It's an amazing gospel. But in this moment in Acts chapter 15, that is all at stake. And it's worth us noting what the problem wasn't. This wasn't a a disagreement over church polity, how the church should operate. This wasn't a disagreement over how we should use the charismatic gifts in our meetings. This wasn't a disagreement about whether we should do proclamation evangelism or social action evangelism. It wasn't a a, a disagreement about whether women should speak in church or not, or any of those secondary or tertiary matters. At the heart of Acts 15 is a challenge and a dispute against the purity and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The very nature of the gospel was being undermined. And that's why when Peter brings his address to the Jerusalem council, starting, I think, is it in verse 7, he wants to make some things very, very clear. And this is the crux of the issue, verse 9, that God has made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles. This is of vital importance. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to know that we all need saving, Jew and Gentile alike. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter what languages you speak, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor, it doesn't matter what pronouns you use, It does not matter. The Bible says that every person who's ever walked on this planet needs saving, that we're in trouble. You might not feel like you're in trouble, but just like every other member of Adam's helpless race, we're all in trouble here today because each one of us is a sinner. We've all rebelled against the holy living God. We've all uh, fallen short of His perfect standard. We've all come under His judgment. And if we don't get saved, we're all facing an eternity separated from the love of God in hell under His punishment forever. But there's good news in Acts 15. In verse 9 we find this that we can be saved and cleansed by faith that's good news for us in fact if we go back to verse 7 have a look what we read i got too many pieces of paper i apologize Have a look what verse 7 says. Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That word gospel means good news. There is good news for our helpless race. There is good news for a people that need saving, that are in trouble, that are unrighteous and unjustified before a holy God. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God himself came to this earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he suffered in our place on the cross, that he was risen to new life to prove himself to be the king of kings, all the nations, and the Lord of all lords. There's good news. And when you believe it, and when you put your faith in it, Peter says in Acts 15 verse 9 that you can be cleansed, cleansed of your sin cleansed of your unrighteousness. You might be here today and you think, I don't deserve to be in a relationship with a holy God. That if God looked at me, he really wouldn't want anything to do with me at all. It's been on my heart to tell you today about a friend of mine in our church. Well, he's in our church. He's not yet a believer. He's a guy who, an ex-con who did time for manslaughter. And then after that, I think for attempted murder, got caught forcing somebody to dig their own grave. He comes to church every single week. And he won't put his faith in Jesus because he believes he's too bad for the living God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are how broken your life is, how far from God you've run, that if you put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf, then you can be cleansed. The slate wiped clean. All the stains of sin gone for good. You think, well, I don't deserve that, Ben. I say, I know you don't deserve that. Have a look what Peter says next. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. This is really good news. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we earn it. It's not that we can satisfy God's wrath by circumcision or by the law or by what we eat or who we eat with or, or by anything else. It's that by grace, God has chosen to rescue us. Jeremy talked about this last week. That word grace, it means gift. It means undeserved kindness. It means that God, in his outrageous love for humanity, has made a way that does does, does matter who you are and what you've done. By grace, you can be part of his people forevermore. And so I want you to see what Peter is contending for in this chapter. This is not about secondary issues or tertiary issues or how the church operates. It's not like pick and mix. We just like want it to be done our way. Peter is contending that every single person who's ever walked on planet earth can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Do you see that? That's the gospel. That's what this is all about. It's wonderful news for us. And so I want you to see how these apostles respond to this great challenge against the gospel. I want you to see four things. Firstly this, that we're told that they oppose this teaching. I love verse 2. It makes me chuckle every time I read it. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. I love that little phrase small dissension and debate. Sounds quite English, doesn't it? It's, I think it's a Tyndallism from 1536 or whatever. It's very polite. In the NIV, we're told they had a sharp disagreement. In the NLT version of the Bible, let me get this right, we're told they were arguing vehemently. I like that. They were red in the face. They were angry because the very gospel, the best news in all the world was being undermined by these people who turned up in Antioch. Friends, when the gospel of God gets opposed, we should be stirred to, to oppose those people. We should be stirred up. And I actually take great encouragement from this verse. If you've ever tried to explain the gospel to somebody who has a different worldview to you, and they've just, you know, you've, you've explained it till you're red in the face, and they've just not got it, and they've not agreed with you. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian who has ever lived, the guy who wrote the book of Romans, He's arguing for the gospel with these people of a different worldview until he's red in the face. I think it says that they did it for uh, when they'd argue. Oh, no, that's later. You just imagine him just like pulling his hair out trying to advocate for good, the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And these guys are just there like, mm, no, not for me, Sorry. If it happens to the Apostle Paul, taking great encouragement if it's ever happened to you. Jesus said, if people don't receive your message, shake the dust off your feet and move on. That's good advice, right? Sometimes. And so they oppose this message, but they get nowhere. And so what do they do? Well, they all go to Jerusalem to fight for clarity. That's what this council in Jerusalem is all about. They're fighting for clarity on the thing that actually matters most in all the worlds. Right? They want to know what is the gospel, how do we receive it, and who is it for? As an aside, it must have been an amazing moment. Aside from like, before Jesus was on the earth and before he arose, uh, ascended, and went back to heaven... I think this would be one of the moments I'd want to be at in all of the New Testament. you thinking, Ben, at a council. Peter and Paul were there together for the first time. Imagine what it had been like when they started sharing their stories of what God was doing in the nations of the world. I don't think that this was like some common subcommittee debate or something. This would have been electric. And they're there... And they've dropped everything to be there. And this is why. Because what the gospel is, who it's for, and how it gets received is the most important matter on this earth. If you're a Christian and you're here today, knowing what the gospel is, knowing who it's for, and knowing how it can be received is the most important thing that you can know. But if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to say that this is vital. Even if you come to reject the message of Christianity, you should still seek to get clarity on what it is. What this book is revealing to us. Who the person of Jesus is and how he claims to have changed people's lives. Because this message has transformed history more than any other. This person, Jesus, has changed more lives than you could ever count. There are two and a something billion people today gathering around the world claiming that Jesus is the Son of God and his deity uh, in human form. Make no mistake, you need to get clarity about this. I don't know whether this is true in central London. It's definitely true in the Rhonda Valley. Most people have no clue who Jesus is. And if they do think they know who Jesus is, most people are unclear about what the gospel is and how it relates to their lives. And so these guys, they fight for clarity on this important issue. Maybe you need to do the same. I really love what happens next. I love the picture of this this meeting, this council that Luke paints for us. Because they get to the point, they get to clarity And this guy, James, by the way, it's not the James that in Acts chapter 11 got beheaded. He doesn't turn up again in Acts 15. That would be quite confusing. That was James, the brother of John, Jesus' cousin. This is James, the half-brother of uh, Jesus, Joseph's son. Yeah? Make sense? Feels like a family tree or something, doesn't it? And so James who's one of the pillars in the church. He seems to be the most... um, Authoritative person in the room after Paul and Barnabas have spoken and Peter has spoken, Paul, uh, sorry, James kind of uh, stands up to conclude matters. And I love what he does. Because after, uh, after all of the talk, he gets to the points, they get to clarity, he uses the Bible, he uses the testimony uh, of, of what the Spirit has been doing in the world, and James stands up to conclude matters. You know, there are two dangers, I think, that we can fall into when it comes to theological debate, fighting for God's truth in the church. The first is this, that we let uh, men like these Judaizers turn up in the church and we never oppose them, that false teaching gets into the church and starts to bubble up in different ways, uh, and we're just too nice and a bit too British and a bit too reserved to never go, I'm sorry, but that's not the gospel. Sometimes it gets into our small groups, right? And we just, somebody says something and, and we oh, we just, well, we couldn't dare say anything, you know, to oppose them. I love that in this, in this message, in this passage, we see that false teaching is opposed and that clarity for the gospel is fought for. But, but I also love this, that they sum it up and they get to the point, right? That it's not just theology for theology's sake, that they don't just keep talking about it, that they don't just move on to, well, we've done that topic, should we talk about the next thing? Right? But actually, they get to the point. They don't obsess about theologi- theological purity. And I love James's pragmatism. I love that he gets on with it. I love that he goes to the book of Amos, of all places. Did you ever think of going there when you were reading the story? About this beautiful picture that the tent of David might be opened up to the Gentiles. Just... Just meditate on that before you go to bed tonight. It's a beautiful picture. And then, I love this, that they then put theology into practice. Because it's not just about who's right or wrong, it's about what matters in the lives of real Christians, right? And so they they, they write this letter, and and they send it off with this group of guys back to Antioch, and they bring the good news. What a relief to these Christians! There is no circumcision requirement for you to worship the living God. And that you can sit at a table with people who are Jews and, you know, be sensitive to their culture, abstain from blood and strangling and and all of that stuff. But fellowship together as a new people in Christ. I love that they put theology into practice because theology isn't for the academy. The gospel isn't just for the debating chamber. The gospel should be shaping our lives. It should be shaping who we eat with. But more than that, it should be shaping how we treat people, how we love them, how we care for them, how we speak to them. The grace of God that we've received should be grace that goes out into all of life. And James seems to get that. He seems to have his eye on it. You know, it could be, we could be tempted to think, well, what on earth is this kind of weird counsel from 50 AD got to do with my life in London in 2023, right? It all looks a bit stuffy, and they're all a bit, like, too important for me. Like, what's this got to do with me? You know, I realized this week, and I don't think it's the point of the passage, but isn't what they're contending for what we have to contend for every day in the Christian life, that we have to oppose all those little false gospels that seep into our lives? It's all around us, right, in this world. Like, be true to yourself. Just do whatever makes you happy. There's all those false gospels out there. There's an enemy of our souls who's the deceiver who speaks all these little lies into our souls. If you've ever woken up on a Monday morning and you feel like a bad Christian and like, oh, I've got to try harder this week, it's a false gospel, right? And so we're in the same, we're in the same dispute. We're in the same war. That we've got to oppose false gospel. We've got to get clear on what the gospel really is and then we've got to work hard like James and the guys do to, to bring it into our lives. So that it's, it's, it's that the gospel doesn't, isn't just a truth that we adhere to, but it's a gospel that we live out every day of our existence as Christ followers. And I love that, 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 that James helps us to do that. He puts theology into practice. But more than that, I love that they deal with this problem swiftly and pastorally, and theologically, but all so that the mission can go on. Do you see that? All so that the mission can go on. You know, they don't even stay in Jerusalem. It might have been nice for Peter, but, you know, maybe just like put our feet up for a while. Let's just enjoy the moment. That's why do meet Peter and Paul just go and just have a little retreat together and See what comes of it. Could have been an interesting time. None of that happens because the mission has to go on. By the end of the chapter, Paul and Silas have hit the road. Barnabas has taken Mark and gone to Cyprus. The believers in Antioch have been strengthened and encouraged by the gifts of the risen Christ. And all this happens so that the mission can go on. Friends, as we close, the goal of our faith is not theological purity, though we have to defend the gospel from the polluting influence of false teachers. The goal of our faith isn't uniformity and harmony at all costs. You see that at the end of the chapter. Paul and Barnabas fall out. They go their separate ways, though unity is of utmost importance. Friends, the goal of our faith is the salvation of our souls and the souls of the nations of the world. Jesus put it like this, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the two great commandments, and then the great commission. Go, therefore, to all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, we must fight in these days for the true gospel to be heard. Amen. Amen? Not to be diluted, not to be undermined, not to be added to, but to be received by faith for the salvation of souls. You now, the good news today is I can't think of a church that is more committed to that than this one, Grace London. But of course, it comes with a danger, and this is it that we become people who enjoy listening to the truth rather than people that proclaim it. Amen. That we become people confident in the truth, but never those who share it. But that we become, we become people fascinated with being clear about every truth. That when the only thing that really matters is that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation hear the glorious news of Jesus. And so we must heed this warning. Not to do theology for theology's sake, but to use it to contend for the truth, to beautify the community of faith so that it's pleasing to God and attractive to outsiders, and so that the mission to get the gospel to the ends of the earth would endure in these days.